Corey Arnold is the creator and host of 12 Tone, a YouTube channel discussing music theory in a unique and engaging way. Since 2015, he's been explaining how music works on a level that casual music listeners can enjoy and relate to, while at the same time dipping into more technical concepts that serious musicians can appreciate. 12 Tone's Understanding Songs series breaks apart, say, why Comfortably Numb has the ability to reach people on an emotional level, or why the Imperial March in Star Wars is so effective. Corey also discusses broader, more philosophical issues surrounding music, such as whether music can really make you smarter or the cultural implications of declaring one type of music proper or good while dismissing others. His visual style on YouTube is quite distinctive. <laughs> he charts out all of these topics with a pin on the staves of sheet music, all with the help of little elephants. Hey, Corey, welcome to the show. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. I've been doing this podcast for a minute, and we've interviewed quite a few creators now. Um, and we always start off with um, the first video. So we're going to go back to July 17th, 2015. Oh, no. <laughs> it's, it's good, actually. Hold on. <laughs> That's when you uploaded your first video. Um, and I've never seen a first video have such a definitive understanding of what the channel is going to be. <laughs> had the intro, had the same filming style, had everything. How in 2015 do you come out of the gate in your first YouTube video is literally uh, still being used as a great explainer for what your channel stands for today? Uh, I think mostly I just found a voice that worked for me. Like I think if you look at my work, it's obviously very heavily influenced by creators like Minute Physics and Viheart, right? Like there's an early on, especially like I, I was looking at those and I was like, I really like the way they're doing it. And I found it really useful as a way to sort of think about music because the way I think about music is very visual. And so I wanted to sort of be able to put things on a page and I didn't want to just be like writing on a whiteboard or anything. And so I knew that that sort of like animated, like hand-drawn thing worked for what I wanted to do. And then I just sort of once I started doing it, it just became easier to keep doing it than to try and find like a completely new format or anything, you know? Do you remember the compulsion as to what, like what was the reasoning back in 2015 to actually give it a try in the first place? To, to make videos? Yeah. Um, a lot of things, but I think well, the one that I often like start with is just like, I had just graduated college and at the time, I had been trying to get a teaching position and that sort of fell through and I had all this free time that I just didn't expect to have and I had gotten a degree in vocal performance but I like over the course of getting that degree realized I didn't like the idea of being like a performing musician professionally that that just that life that world didn't work for me and so I had to find something else that like made the last four and a half years of my life not a waste while still like not making me go and do spend the rest of my life doing something I didn't want to do. And so I remembered like my really enjoying my theory classes. I'd actually like talked to a friend of mine, a friend who introduced me to the idea of educational YouTube. Uh, he had sent me, I think it was the number file video on the philosophy of whether or not numbers are real. 
and that like completely changed what I thought YouTube could be, right? Like up to that point in my head, YouTube was cat videos. And I think for a lot of people back in like 2010 or whatever, that's what YouTube was. And so this, that like he and I had been talking and I've been like, oh, I like my music theory classes. And like, maybe I could do some educational videos about that. And then suddenly I found myself with this free time. And I also like, I had been talking to like some of my teachers and they were just like, yeah, you know what? If you don't like use this stuff, you're going to forget it. Like music theory is like so formalized that if you're not thinking about it, you just, you don't hold on to it. And I wanted to hold on to it because I liked it. So I sort of putting all of this together was like, you know what? This is a way to give myself an excuse to keep thinking about this stuff and also a way to use some free time that I didn't expect to have without having to like start a band and go that route. Somebody who is not a musician is and casually listens to music. How do you describe what music theory is? So there's there's like a bunch of different definitions that I use depending on context, but sort of the the basic elevator pitch that I like is that music theory is the study of why things sound good. Right? Like it looks at music and it's just like I like this why. You know? Of course, I mentioned this in the interview, but you've got definitely a unique presentation style. <laughs> um, you got to ask about the elephants. You use a lot of the, it's kind of become yeah. your, your trademark on, yeah. on your videos. <laughs> Very much a mascot. Um, those sort of, honestly, they come from early on. Actually, early on, we were supposed to be like a team. There was like three or four of my friends that were working together on this. And over time, they all left and I wound up taking over more and more roles. But like back at the beginning, there were three of us and we were talking. We we're like, we probably want some like symbols, right? Some like branding stuff that we can point to that like says like, oh, this is a 12 tone video. And we had been working on a video, uh, some introductory videos. And one of them was about notation and the way that we were talking about like uh, the treble clef and the bass clef, the the lines of those and remembering what the notes were on the various lines. We wanted to use mnemonics because that's how we normally do those. But like the mnemonics we knew were kind of bad. Like the default one that most people I think get taught for the treble clef is like every good boy does fine. And that's that's fine. It's not good. Like you remember it, but like <laughs> and face. it's not fun to say. <laughs> yeah, face is the other one. Yeah. And then, like, for the bass clef, you usually just, like, rotate the, the other one. And, like, good boys do fine always. And it's like, whatever. I don't care. There's, but, some, there's like, some really questionable versions of those, too, yeah. aren't in there. Oh, yeah, for <laughs> sure. But, like, but we wanted to sort of come up with our own. And a friend of mine for the bass clef recommended gummy bears don't feel anything, <laughs> which is one that he used with some of his students because he taught kids. And we thought that was really fun, but he didn't have one for treble clef. And so we went back and forth, and eventually I came up with elephants grow big dangly faces. <laughs> and so then we had these sort of two mnemonics, and it was just like, what if we just use that? And we just used elephants for the thing, and then threw gummy bears, and we used to use those more, but over time they sort of moved to just be at the end of the video. And it's this completely, like, this weird thing we do at the end of every video where, like, after I'm done, like, drawing all the links and whatever, my sibling just, like, throws some gummy bears on the page, and l no one really knows why anymore. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that is why. <laughs> but, yeah, the, the elephants come from that. Do you have any formal training as far as uh, drawing or illustration is concerned, or is that just uh, labor of love? No, I actually, like, wasn't the original animator on the channel. Like, I wasn't confident enough in my drawings. So if you go back and watch, like, the first six months or so... 
that's one of the other people I was working with was my friend Emmanuel, who I went to college with, and he had like fantastic handwriting and like was a great artist and. And he was right-handed. <laughs> yeah, he was right-handed. Yeah. You know, so that he, that answers that. Let me yeah. just take that question off the <laughs> list. But yeah, no, he's, you still see his hand in the intro because, like, the videographer we worked with for the intro, like, had already moved on by the time I took over animating, so we didn't want to remake it. But, like, he 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 was doing that, and then about six months in, he decided to move back home. And so we, which, you know, fair enough, and... But then that meant that either I was going to stop doing the channel, find someone else who was willing to do this work with me, or just take it over myself. And at that point, I had already gotten comfortable enough with a lot of the other processes that I was just like, I'd rather not be reliant on anyone else if I can avoid it. So I'm just going to do this myself. And if you go back and watch like the early ones, like I am not good at drawing. And if you watch the recent ones, I'm still not very good at drawing, but I try hard. So, you know. <laughs> I think what you do is you encapsulate concepts into iconography, which is so basic and stripped down that it reads they, it, almost like sentences as you're talking and these these icons come out. It's, yeah. it's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, the analogy I think of just as a musician is leitmotifs, which are uh, these sort of musical ideas that we get used in like film scores and whatever to sort of identify a specific character. Like, if you think of, like, the Jaws theme, like, da-da, da-da, that, that's a leitmotif. And so in the same way, I think, like, when I'm when I'm talking about chords or harmony, I'll draw the snowman that, like, is a representation of, like, a notated triad stack. But it's also just, like, has taken on this separate meaning just because of how often I use it for that. And a lot of the stuff I tend to think of, again, as just, like, symbols for ideas and not... I tend to be fairly flexible on them. Like I, I will use things in all sorts of contexts if I feel like it's appropriate. But like I've had people try and put together like one to one like lists of like this is a translator. When Twelve Tone draws this, this is what they mean. And it's like that's it's not quite that simple, but like sometimes it is, you know. Let's rewind even earlier. At what point in your life did you realize that you kind of liked music or looked at music differently than most of the people around you? That was actually fairly late compared to a lot of musicians. I think, like when I was when I was like a little kid, I did like play like baritone horn in my elementary school band. I also like played around on piano, but I refused to take lessons. And my parents were just like, "You play this so much, you should take lessons." I was like, "No, I'm just gonna like play these random notes. I refuse to learn which ones sound good, uh, and we're done." <laughs> but like. As, like, taking it seriously, that wasn't really until, um, like, mid-high school, where uh, some friends and I decided to start a band, and then it turned out that no one else was really all that serious about it, but I had already gotten into doing the singing part of it. We were going to be a metal band, and so I was doing, like, metal singing, and I found that really fun. And from there, that's sort of where I wound up, or how I wound up, pursuing music was I was just like I want to be a metal singer this is really fun and like when I got to college I wound up like way behind a lot of my classmates who had like started around like eight or nine or ten or whatever and I was just like I started like two three years ago but you know you, you put in the work and hopefully it works out you know did you do the metal growling yes I did that was sort of the main thing that I did it, it actually 
took a long time before I actually, before anyone convinced me that I should learn to do like actual singing too. <laughs> but there's but, like a real technique to growling so you just don't completely yeah. ruin your, your throat, right? Yeah, no, it, it's it's hard to do safely. And it's one of those things where like, I've had people ask me to like teach them and I always get like really like cagey about it because especially the technique that I do because I sort of worked it out on my own without like formal training and it's different from what a lot of people do. And so I've always worried that like if I try and explain it to someone else, they'll try and replicate it, but they'll do it wrong and wind up hurting themselves, you know? <laughs> yeah, I used to, when that concept first started coming, I mean, I know there were bands who were doing some growling for years, but it really be, kind of yeah. became standard in metal. And it, for a while, I didn't understand why so many of these bands were doing this until I started to kind of look at it differently, that that almost became just another instrument in the, yeah. in the band in a way yeah no it is is if you look at a lot of like like the lyrics from bands like that they're not really set up to be the sorts of things where you understand every word right like this is rob zombie is one of my favorite examples oh, i love it's rob like, zombie you look at like rob zombie lyrics like every sentence is its own sort of like image and you can think of it as like a series of like still frames from a weird horror movie and you don't need to sort of be able to trace a story through all of it because you're going to you're going to lose some of them. He's not like un until you're really used to like understanding Rob Zombie's specific voice, which I am. But like, you know, most people aren't in fair enough. But like you get to you, you wind up picking out a couple snapshots and you're like, oh, that's cool. That's cool. But it's not really in the same way that, you know, like a Bob Dylan song might expect you to have heard all of the words. And it's sort of, it's a different approach to songwriting and it's, it's not necessarily better or worse. It's just, you know, different and fits the instrument. Who were some of the other bands that you were listening to in and around this time that kind of really made you start to take inventory about like, wow, I'm listening to what I'm hearing, but then when I kind of dig a little deeper, there, there's a lot more here. Yeah. So uh, back in, back in high school, you mean? Yeah. When, when you were yeah. first kind of like, yeah, really starting to yeah. listen to music with these ears. So I, th I think like a lot of what I was listening to was like, like, you know, metal, especially new metal. Uh, but like I was listening to like Marilyn Manson, Comba Christ, um, Bury Your Dead. Um, what else was I listening to? Cannibal Corpse. Uh, a little bit. I, Cannibal Corpse was a little extreme for me, no. <laughs> <laughs> honestly. But like I, I heard them, but like they, they just they were a little bit too far from for me at that time. And, you know, it, it's. Those guys still but, crank out music. They've yeah, been around yeah. forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. But yeah, I, I think I, I was more sort of personally more on sort of the rock metal boundary than on like the deep metal stuff. So like bands like Korn, uh, a little bit of Slipknot, although I really, I got into Slipknot later. Uh, but like th those sorts of things were a lot of what I was listening to at the time. Have you ever thought about what your life would be like if you ended up becoming a professional singer instead because that was that was the path at one point yeah. correct yeah yeah no that was that was the plan um i think what would have happened is that i would have quit uh, if i'm being honest like i think one of the things that happens with like being a singer is unless you're like really really good which i i was good i wasn't like you know top tier like amazing but like if you're not that, like everyone expects you to sort of be the one organizing because you're like the face of the band. And so like you have to be sort of like putting everything together. And that just like is not a skill set I have. 
And so like what I kept doing was I would like reach out to some friends, be like, we should start a band. We do like one jam session. And then like, we'd like, I, I would never get around to putting together a second one and everything would sort of fall apart. And I'd get like super self-conscious about like sharing my work. And it just, I think that just the way that I interact with the world socially is not very well set up for being a professional kicking <laughs> musician. Uh, and then, then that's not even like getting into like interacting with like club bookers and like design it's like booking recording sessions and everything like that. It's just, there's, there's just a lot of stuff that you have to do behind the scenes that just like, isn't nearly as fun as being a professional singer sounds like it would be. So I think, like a lot of my friends from college who like went to be professional musicians wound up doing something else because it's a really tough industry to sort of get anywhere in. And so like I have friends who went on to like, just go be like chefs instead or whatever. And like some of them are still doing music. Like there's definitely people, like, friends of mine who are still like out there doing music, being professional musicians, but it's just, it, it just does not appeal to me as a life, you know? <laughs> How has it been being a professional YouTuber? And do you uh, consider yourself a professional YouTuber? When someone comes up and is like, yeah. hey, what do you do? What do you, what do you tell them? So what I usually tell them is that I work in online educational media. <laughs> and then we get a couple more questions deep. And then I say YouTube. But I do, I do consider myself a professional YouTuber. This is my full-time job. I do pay my bills and everything with money that I make from YouTube videos. So, well, I mean, technically, most of that is from telling people to buy sponsored stuff. So, like, technically, I'm a professional sponsor e, but, <laughs> but you know, I I do that on YouTube, and I consider myself a professional YouTuber. And in terms of how I found it, it's you know, it's it's mixed. Any any profession, especially like like a media profession, like like I I tend to think like what we do is sort of like a micro celebrity thing. Where, you know, I, I'm not a celebrity. I don't think I'm a celebrity, but like I have an audience. I have people who are like listening to me and that's how I get paid. And so anything like that, it looks a lot more glamorous from the outside, as I'm sure you both know, uh, where it's just like, oh, I get to make fun videos all the time. Like I get to spend all my time thinking about music. And it's like, no, I get to spend all my time staring at analytics and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> editing video and yeah. deciding what thumbnail to pick. Yeah, no, so much time goes into like thumbnails. It's just like it's And you have yeah. a certain level of anonymity too because yeah. you run a faceless channel. And yeah. uh so I I'm sure people start, as soon as they start to hear that voice they they might recognize <laughs> you, but uh you you probably can even walk around VidCon or any of the big conferences and people wouldn't recognize you. Yeah, I mean I like I have done like a couple face reveal things. Like I've did a couple live streams on Adam Neely's channel a couple years back. I have a side channel where I've posted some like vloggy stuff, which I usually do face to camera. So like the, my face is out there if people want to find it. And I have once or twice if you count at VidCon, but VidCon doesn't count. But like once in like the normal world had someone recognize me. I actually, I went to the Apple store and the person like checking me in, I was just like, do you, do you do music? And I was like, yep. And it's like, do you have an affinity for gummy bears? And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> You've <laughs> seen my video. <laughs> and I mean, they, they were chill about it. It's like, which I appreciate it, cool. but it's just, yeah. But yeah, and that's like the only time that's ever happened. And like once again at VidCon, after I had done a panel, 
uh, I was going up an elevator and someone going down, uh, or escalator, and someone going down the other side was just like, hey, I love your videos. And I was like, oh, thanks. Uh, but yeah, they, for the most part, I mean, I, I don't have like a huge enough audience that I would expect random people around my neighborhood to recognize me anyway. Like, you know, I'm not like Mark Rober or anything, but like, I, I definitely have a fair amount of anonymity from that, even compared to like friends of mine who do have like similarly sized channels. Do you see any time where you might change that in your videos and start, you know, talking right to the camera? Or do you think you're just going to constantly keep it this format? Probably not. I mean, I think partly at this point, just like from a professional branding perspective, right. like that radical a shift would be pretty noticeable yeah. and would probably lose me a lot of like, but like, it's also just like, it's a style of communication that I've gotten very comfortable with and that I sort of understand the nuances of better than pretty much anyone on earth. Right. Like this is one of those like things that comes up where like I'll, I'll talk to people about like video editing and like they'll be talking about things like, you know, chroma keying and like color balance and like temperatures and whatever. And I, I, I'm thinking about like taking clips and then speeding them up to match audio. And it's just like, I think there are like three or four people in the world who could realistically teach me all that much about the sort of editing I do at this point. And that's not a brag. It's more just that I do a really weird, obscure thing. Like, well, you've just put like, in the reps. You've been yeah, just doing yeah, no, it. I've been doing this for like six years. And like, I will occasionally like learn about like a feature of Premiere that I didn't know about. But like, it's been a while since even that's happened. But like, I'm sure if I sat down with like Henry Reich, like he, he could teach me some stuff, but like not, not most video editors, you know? On a real uh, basic level, what is your production like do you i assume you record all of the audio first and then yeah. do the drawings to match that and how, how does that work and how long does a, a typical video take so a, a typical video generally i do over the course of a week i sort of have like an idealized version of a schedule that i try to stick to as much as i can so like saturday i will try to do get the script finished by and i'll usually have been researching that beforehand i don't really count research as production that's more like pre-production stuff uh but like i'll try to get that done on saturday and that's these days usually like i don't know i don't know how many hours it's you, you i'm sure you guys both know like with, with like script writing or whatever like so much of that is happening in the back of your head when you're not like actively focusing on it that it's really hard to like say how much time it took you know, you're not you're not punching but, in every time you no, sit on the no, couch and think about something for an yeah. hour. Yeah, so so it. much of that happens like you're taking a shower and just think it's like, oh yeah, this chord kind of looks like this chord. It's just I better like, log okay. five minutes of research time <laughs> on my time card. Yeah, no, it's just it, that's just not how it works. And so like I always get a little cagey about like pinning down exact amounts of time for that reason. But like usually by Saturday, I will try and get that done. Sunday is like recording. Uh, which is usually sitting, that's that's about half an hour of actual recording and then a couple hours of editing. Uh, but of course, throughout this entire process, I'm revising the script in my head and I will go back and re-record things. Um, but like once I have that and once I have all the audio edited, then I'll sort of sit down and write out what I call the animation directions, which hopefully fairly self-explanatory, but what I'll do is I'll just listen to each, um, listen to the audio and for each like, idea i will just decide what i want to draw and that is honestly like the most stressful part of the process that's the one that like is hardest to focus on because it's like 
it's creative work, but like it, it requires like creative engagement, but like because there's so many of them, each individual one probably isn't that important. I just have to have some good ones. And so it's not like a highly rewarding one like script writing can be. So like that that one I will what I'll usually do is I'll like set like a 20 minute timer and just go and then just be done after 20 minutes and go take a break. And I usually get like three to four minutes of like actual finished audio directed per 20 minute. So, you know, you can think like five to seven minutes per minute of uh, final footage for that process. And that usually takes like Monday. Sometimes it'll go into Tuesday because I just don't like doing it. Um, but like then either Tuesday night or Wednesday morning, I will film. And there I'm just like sitting down and just like, reading the directions one by one and drawing them. And that's like usually about a three hour process these days. Uh, for the longest time, I was just doing that in like a crappy Ikea chair, uh, which was not great for my back. I'd finally like a couple weeks ago, as of this recording upgraded to like a really nice, like desk chair. And it's just, it's so much better. I don't know why I didn't do this years ago, but like, uh, but like that, that process, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly, I don't want to say mechanical, but like, I, I am just like going down a list and doing like this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing. And it, there's not a lot of thought that has to go into it. And so it's sort of, it's, it can be fun. It can be relaxing just because, you know, I'm just sitting there drawing elephants. And then from there, what I'll do is I'll like take that, import that into Premiere, speed it up to I, I default to 400% and then render. And then what I'll go through is like, picture by picture, like aligning them with the audio. Like I've had people ask if what I do is just like play the audio really slow and animate to that. And that was an idea that I had early on that I thought might be the way to do it. But like we tried it and it really doesn't work because there's just so much variability in terms of how long it takes to draw something. And so it's just so much easier to just film it at whatever rate is natural and then just fix it and align everything in post. And so it's like sometimes you know, I'll do things where I'll hit like Premiere's limit of like 10,000% speed. And it's just like, it's fine. <laughs> but, you know, it, I, I, it's just, it's again, it, it's just an easier way to do it. And that I think is the main thing that people assume that I do that I don't do uh, because it just doesn't work nearly as well as you'd think it would. How many cuts do you put in between your audio? As in, do you put cuts in between words or do you basically just try to get the sentence out and then cut the space in between your sentences or in between yeah like bunches of words so I, I try to do a sentence or two i try not to cut mid-sentence if i can although i have like worked out some tricks for hiding that when i do it but like mostly i'll try and sort of go cut within like the length of a breath right so however long I can say stuff without stopping to take a breath. I will try and do that as one section, you know? Yep. Do you think the speed is part of the style of your video? Do you think it was uh, a part of the style of your video because you were influenced by people who kind of do a similar thing where it's that very fast cadence of speaking and, you, and yeah. it really feels like it's like I don't need to uh, adjust the playback speed <laughs> watching any of these videos because right. it's it seems like it's already taken into consideration so I guess my larger question is do you sit in front of the microphone and figure out how to speak in that cadence so you can record it or do you record at a reg regular cadence and you make all of that you know fit in editing 
Well, so part of it is definitely the influence. Like, I, again, I've, like, watched a lot of metaphysics. I watched a lot of, like, Hank Green stuff, and he talks very fast. And so that's definitely a factor. But it's also just, like, as as you may have noticed, I talk really fast. Like, that's just, this is a natural cadence for me. And so when I'm recording, it's most natural to sort of speak at it at the speed that I speak. And I feel like if I get too much slower, my voice starts to sound condescending. And I never want my audience to feel like I'm condescending to them, right? Like, I don't want to like have people listen and be like, well, here's what's going on. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, that's, that's not, I, I don't feel comfortable with that. And so like what I will mostly do is again, just record myself speaking the way I fairly naturally speak. There is like some inflection stuff that I do as like a performer narr- narrator voice. Uh, my actual speaking voice kind of sits a bit lower, but you know, it, it's just, it's a way of presenting, but, Again, I think I think the basic answer is that it it's not really something I did intentionally. It's just sort of the way I talk and that sort of came through in the work and I think became part of the style. One of the things I admire about your channel is you have a series of what I got wrong about <laughs> blank video. And I yeah. don't think there's a lot of YouTubers that are willing to do that. <laughs> and But I like the fact that you go back and kind of either correct things you didn't quite get right or maybe you just have a new understanding of something and is this just part of your evolution as a music theorist or do you pick up a lot of these from people in the comments how does how do those come to be yeah so those partly come back from me sort of going back and watching the videos again and thinking like what didn't I talk about I go back and listen to the song and I will also scroll through the comments and see like you know what are people complaining about and you know, sometimes I will agree with them and I'll address that and sometimes I'll disagree with them and I may or may not address it. Wait, wait, people complain about things on YouTube? <laughs> on the internet? <laughs> occasionally, <laughs> occasionally. You have, you have to go digging. <laughs> but, but yeah, although it, it is, it was interesting going back and doing for a lot of these, like I have these like memories of making these videos and some people being like really loud and angry about this particular thing. And then I go back and read the comments and I have to scroll down like two pages to find it because like I just really amplified this one critique that like two people actually made. But in my head, this was everyone. It's funny. Uh, But your video on uh, Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb is one of the most popular videos that you have on your channel. Yeah. Uh, And the song is over 40 years old. So what is it? about that song and what is it more so about the fact that you seem to concentrate on songs which have a little bit more familiarity with them even perhaps to the detriment of view totals when you could be going and doing Billie Eilish songs or popular songs is there a reason why you focus on classics like that um so mostly I think that good analysis comes from a place of deep respect and so that means that I have to be analyzing music that I like and music that I'm intimately familiar with. And so those are just like classic rock and especially like like 90s and early 2000s rock. Those are the genres that I know the best. And so those are the ones that I gravitate towards and that I think I would do the best job analyzing, right? Like if you put, um, I don't know, like some like John Coltrane piece in front of me, like I don't know that music as well and so i can't really do as good a job talking about why that music is worth knowing and that's not to say anything bad about it it's like john coltrane was fantastic at what he did it's just like what he did is not as much a thing that i know as well 
And so I try to focus on stuff I know. It's also one of the way that I pick songs these days is by Patreon poll. Hmm. And so I'll, I'll like pick the things that go on the poll, but then I'll, I'll put it up and people will vote on which ones they want. And so I've like, I tried to put a Billie Eilish song on it once and people were just not into it. And so like this sort of, you now that I've cultivated an audience that wants classic rock stuff and wants like 2000s era rock stuff, like that sort of reinforces itself as well. So even if I wanted to branch out, it, like I can, cause I can put whatever I want on the poll. I could put four Billie Eilish songs on it. They can't stop me, but like, <laughs> like <laughs> you know, it, but because of that, like it's harder to sort of branch out into other things at, at times, which is, is good and bad, you know, cause I think, one of the benefits of the poll that I've found is that it gives me like an early warning system if people don't care about a song, right? Like I put um, Peace of My Heart by Janis Joplin on there at one point, And like, I thought that song would be super popular. And like, it got like 10 votes maybe. <laughs> and it's just like, I don't understand that. I think Peace of My Heart is a fantastic piece of music. And I thought people liked it, but like, it just, it didn't work. And so... I have this early warning that says maybe maybe don't do that one and that back before I was doing the poll like I did a like like a stone by audio slave which was like a hugely popular song among like my cohort at college everyone loved audio slave everyone loved Chris Cornell and like a stone was like one of the big songs we talked about and thus like I did the video and no one clicked on it because no one remembered that song and it's so like and so I was realizing that I was sort of in, in a bubble on that one. And this gives me a way to get a sense a little bit of what, what's outside that in terms of my own understanding. You also made a video called Beethoven Sucks at Music. Yep. And <laughs> you intentionally, intentionally ruffled some feathers and well done. <laughs> but uh, it's clearly your most disliked video. Yeah, um, probably. <laughs> uh, did you know that going in? I mean, I think uh, you probably kind of knew that you were, you were naming it for... I had a sense, for... yeah. I I, yeah, I got some people mad at me for that one. Um, I'm not actually sure it's my most disliked video. I think that might be the Ben Shapiro one. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that the the Beethoven one, uh, to be clear for anyone listening who hasn't seen yes. it, my <laughs> argument wasn't actually that Beethoven is bad. My argument was much more about the way we form canons and the way we wind up with this set of composers, especially like classical composers, especially dead white Germans, who we're just not allowed to say are bad. We're like, we're we're not allowed to be like this person didn't make good music because we've just agreed objectively that they do. And obviously, canons exist in other forms too. Like, you know, if if I'd called the video "Led Zeppelin Sucks at Music," I think it would have been even more disliked. But like, <laughs> you know, like these these sorts of ideas of especially like the Western classical canon and how Beethoven, Mozart, Bach, these figures have sort of become effectively deified in ways that are not great and that was sort of more what the video was about than actually arguing that beethoven is bad in any sort of objective sense just to be clear for anyone more of a case of privilege and there was a whole yeah. bunch of people who probably could have been creating amazing music back then yeah. who weren't encouraged to and yes yeah. the go watch the video if yeah. anybody had an issue with what that <laughs> last question was you actually have several videos along those same lines and uh, those are some yeah. of my favorite videos of yours that kind of explore some of these these issues yeah. abound and it really to me it comes down to this whole it's kind of musical elitism that there is yeah. a proper good kind of music and we we kind of are taught this from childhood that if if you and you just recently had a video on on 
like does music make you smarter and it, it also yeah. kind of dovetails into that where and i remember when my son was small you could buy these baby mozart you know yeah. <laughs> videos and you everybody thought their kids were going to be were going to be geniuses from listening to and it's all been thoroughly debunked it means yeah. nothing yeah, I mean, on that one, like the the idea that like listening to classical music will make kids smarter forever, that was never even a claim to begin with. No study ever claimed that, so it wasn't even like a, a debunking in that sense. It was like it was just the it just wasn't true. No one ever said it was true who had done any sort of research on it. It just like got into the ether somehow, and it was just Baby Mozart Company was the yeah. they were the saying they were like, yeah. hey, it's. Perfect. It's great for your kids. Classical music will make them smarter. <laughs> I think what struck me the most, and I hadn't thought about this before, and I think you, you nailed it, is when you made the point that a lot of schools will try to retain funding for music by kind of citing that, well, music makes kids smarter. So by, by keeping these music programs, you're gonna be, your kids are going to be able to do better at science and math, which... Yeah. It's like totally discounting the value of music on its own, that its only yeah, purpose exactly. is to serve these the higher values of science yeah. and math. Yeah, it's, it's complicated because, I mean, it is arguably a decent strategy in the current sort of discourse to be like, because there is such an enamorment with like science We're obsessed and technology with STEM and stuff like right that. Now. And just like, yeah. you know, STEM will save the world. And, and like, I don't want to discount that. Like, you know, like there's, there's a lot of, I don't want to sit here and be like science is bad or science is useless. Like there's a lot of really important things that like we've done with science over the last, you know, century or, or further. Like, and I love science too. I watch a lot of like science YouTube channels and I like love learning about science and I don't want to like come across as like trying to start a fight between music and science, but also people very clearly have already started that fight and have already, de already decided that science wins and that bugs me, you know? Yeah, but no one sits in their car and listens to a science talk. <laughs> so what, Put like, on some science. One of the questions, and I didn't write it down because I didn't know exactly how to word it. And now I'm going to like marble mouth it. Yeah. But what is it about music? I think about all arts. I think about painters yeah. or I think about an actor. And a movie can resonate with you. My favorite movie is this and I really like it. But I don't take Pulp Fiction to a campfire. I don't pick up no. a piano and, 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 and play a, a thing from whatever. And I love art, uh, but I also don't digest it. So what is it about music? Is it just because it's just so accessible and, and fun? Yeah. So it, I, I think that, and this is a thing, I'm trying to remember which video I made that touched on this. I've, I've made over 300 videos. I can't keep them all straight. But sort of, I think that music exists in a pretty unique space at the overlap between popularity and accessibility, right? Because you, you talk about a film and like you think about like any film that you love, like odds are like a hundred people at least worked on that film. And so you couldn't go out and make a Pulp Fiction, right? You couldn't get some friends together and make Pulp Fiction in a weekend. But you know, you could get some friends together and play Stairway to Heaven in a weekend. Like, and so, or you could pick up a guitar and put some things together yeah. and write yeah, some inspiring lyrics. It, it makes it yeah. very attainable. Yeah. And so, so you have, it's, it's really accessible. It's really easy for you to think of yourself as someone who could make music, even if you're not. And so it feels very personal. And, you know, there, there's other things like poetry is another one that's e easily accessible, but it's, 
it's not that popular. And so it doesn't sort of have that aspect. And I think music is everywhere. It surrounds us so much in our lives in a way that poetry doesn't, but it's also doable and personal in a way that movies really can't be. And obviously there are more art forms than just those three, but like, you know, everything sort of has these different characteristics. And I think music right now, at least in the way that modern society works is the one that sort of has those things, both of those things the most. And so it has, again, a more personal connection than a lot of things can because you are surrounded by it and you can feel it as an individual expression, if that makes any sense. I'm not sure if it did, but... (laughs) I think that the experience of listening to music on a regular basis is actually pretty new among humans. I mean, really within the past 150 years or so, even once recordings came about, but I mean, people could live their entire lives and only have heard maybe one or two performances (laughs) other than just maybe singing at home or something. And now music is just part of the fabric of our lives, which actually kind of makes me wonder, is it harder to just even find music with this sea of cons, <laughs> or to even pay attention to it? I think we have, I mean, we have more access to different kinds of music than ever before. And that, that does come with some sort of like, you know, analysis paralysis where you're just like, there are so many things I could be listening to which ones am I going to? Whereas if you go back, even like you don't even have to go back to before recorded music. If you go back to like the sixties, like part of the reason the Beatles got so big was that like there were fairly narrow distribution channels so they could just dominate all of them. And so then you get these like superstars that we really don't have anymore. Like we have bands that like an artists that sort of, dominate like pop radio or whatever we have like taylor swift or whatever but like i don't think even at her like most popular taylor swift's fan base rivaled beatlemania like i just it wasn't the same and because again anytime she was like doing things like you could also just as easily find music by slipknot and or other completely unrelated artists and so the, the distribution channels have opened up and it can make it really hard to find exactly what you're looking for, but it makes it easier to find other things that you might not have known you were looking for. Like I recently found just through YouTube recommendations, a band called the Shaolin Afronauts that does this really cool instrumental Afrobeat music that I, I was not like searching for, but like because it happened to pop up in my YouTube recommendations, I like I listened to their album and it was really good. And so now I really like them. And so I, I think it's h- harder to be intentional, but a lot easier to sort of just ride that wave and see what you can find, if that makes sense. Does popular music today suck because I'm an old man? Or does popular <laughs> music today just suck? Uh, more because you're old. Um, <laughs> Like there's there's a lot of good research uh, on the cognitive side of this that indicates for various reasons that I'm not an expert on. And so I'm not going to like cite the specific results, but like basically the music that is popular when you're about like 13, 14 sort of gets imprinted on you and winds up feeling like the best music forever. And so like, again, I'll go back and listen to like Rob Zombie and like, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say that Rob Zombie is a better artist than Billie Eilish. I wouldn't say he's worse either, but like, I have a definite 
preference for Rob's, although I do really like Billie Eilish. She does great music. I probably should have picked a different example, <laughs> like, uh, and in, in that same sort of industrial vein that Rob Zombie did too. God, that was a terrible example to pick. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, like if you look at like the research, like modern music, modern popular music is probably pretty different from what was popular music when you were growing up. I don't know exactly how old you are, so I don't know what that music is. But, you know, it's it's probably pretty structurally different. But... And you've sort of learned to associate the structures that you grew up with as the good ones. And so you then hear things that don't have that structure and it's harder for you to appreciate them. That doesn't mean they're worse. It just means they're not for you. I started to fall out of touch when music became less about composing albums as stories and as... Yeah. And it just became about transactional singles and say, hey, go get my latest single yeah. on iTunes and it's 99 cents. And I remember saving up and then a band releasing an album and it being more of a like producing a movie versus just producing yeah. a bunch of videos on YouTube. And yeah. I do that. So I'm certainly not. Yeah. But they're two completely different things. And. I get, uh, so again, a, a little yeah. tongue in cheek about the old man thing, yeah. but it is true. It's very hard. I grew up listening to rap music. So I'm, I'm mid 40s, so, but I grew up listening to rap music in the early. I was enamored yeah. by NWA and all of that because it was music that was coming from a place that had a message which I had never been exposed to before. And it was raw and real and different and whatever. Yeah. And I listened to what a child is listening to now. And I get that I'm making a vast generalization, but it seems yeah. to be a little bit more about consumerism or like what I have or da da da. And it, and I get that I sound like that old man <laughs> on the lawn waving his cane, but it's hard to listen to someone for the fiftieth time talk about how much money they have and stand in front of a Ferrari for a musical genre which I have so much respect for. It's very weird to be like it's because I'm old that I don't get yes, this. Yes, and that. That's fair. It's worth recognizing, I think, that like that music is also still out there and still being made. Yes. Right? Like it, it it may not be the easiest stuff to find on the radio, but the radio is less and less representative of what average people are listening to. So like if you look at again, if you look at someone like to to pick a modern rapper, Kendrick Lamar, like I would not describe his work as mostly being like, look at how much money I have. Absolutely. Uh, like and so that that stuff is still there and it's still very popular and I also think it's easy to sort of forget that bad, boring music existed back then too. Like, no, it didn't. If, if you go back and look at like, it's very like true. the top single, like or the, the top hundred singles from like the nineteen sixties, like half of those are songs I've never heard of because they just did not stand the test of time. And so we remember things like "Stairway to Heaven." We remember things like "Straight Out of Compton" because like these they had an impact and they had this staying power. And what we're looking at now is music that hasn't had time to sort of go through that, like sieving and reduction process of like weeding out the things that just don't last. And so it's, it's easy to sort of romanticize what there used to be because and there used to be like really good stuff. And there also used to be bad stuff, but we don't talk about that. So we only talk about the good stuff that's there. But now we talk about the good and bad stuff because we haven't had as much time to work out which is which. I think it's important to keep seeking out new music. I'm constantly doing this. And like Billie Eilish, I love Billie Eilish music. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because it was 
when she came out with Bad Guy, it was just to me so minimalist yeah. and so different that I just loved that. And so now, you know, over the past 10 or 15 years, I'm like almost everything I listen to is more newer music. I kind of feel like I've, I've listened to all the other stuff enough. And so I think yeah. it's good that we keep at it. Yeah. And I mean, if you want to talk about like albums that tell a story, when we all fall asleep, where do we go is a fantastic yeah. example. <laughs> like Exactly. I've yeah. like, um, there's so many like, I've listened to like a couple songs on that album, just like on their own, like Bury a Friend is one of my favorites. That song is so good. But like, just listening to that whole album as an album is like such an experience that you don't get from the isolated tracks. As a music theorist, what advice would you give to a casual music listener to listen to music more critically and intently? So the the biggest thing that I talk about when I talk about sort of listening to music like a professional is um, a skill that I call orchestral listening, which is the ability to sort of focus in on individual parts within a larger piece of music and to sort of like lock in and hear, okay, what is the bass doing? What is the like what are the drums doing what is the what is the guitar is there like a, a background like flute line that i missed like those sorts of things finding those parts because i think it's very easy as a casual listener to sort of have these powerful emotional experiences and then assume that the only thing that caused them was that they were really good lyrics because the lyrics are such front are so front and center it's really easy to identify like this is like a really great way of putting this this speaks to me and so clearly my experience with it is based on that but like one one example that i like to use is um leonard cohen's hallelujah like i think most people would agree or at least i i would assert and people are free to disagree with me if they want but the most powerful lyric in the first verse is a baffled king composing hallelujah like that's to me like the strongest and the part that makes me go like whoa but like, and sends shivers down my spine. But like, if you go look underneath the hood, like you'll see that what's also happening there is this introduction of an E major chord on the word composing that's like borrowed from a different key and has this like like different effect. It's also the peak of the melodic ascent that he's been doing over the last, I think four bars. But anyway, there's this big walk up that he does in the second half of the verse and composing is the high note in that. And there's, there's so many other sort of musical elements that come together to make this line land that you don't necessarily pick up on if you're just sort of reading the lyrics and being like, oh, that's a good line. So like trying to hear parts besides the obvious ones is I think the biggest skill that I would recommend for anyone trying to get sort of quote unquote better at listening to music. Do you have problems turning off your music critic when you just want to listen to music? Do you sometimes like are like plowing through Spotify songs, just like, ah, oh, I hate that bass line. Ah, oh, I don't like that. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I rarely negative, like, because I, I mostly, like, listen to stuff that I have some reason to believe I'll like, at least, but I, I have found it's very difficult to sort of shut off the analytical brain, both as a music theorist and, and as a vocalist, like, just from years at college of, like, having to, like, sit down with a song I had never heard before and learn to sing it in a couple days, like, I have, like, really finely tuned, like, instincts to just pick out like what the vocals are doing and how would I replicate this if I had to sing it what what am I approaching how am I approaching this and in the same way like as a theorist I'm like okay picking out like what are the things about this and so what I found is that like it makes it hard to listen to music passively like I can do like active listening and that's really rewarding 
but it's not the same as being relaxing. And so what I've found to sort of shut off that part of my brain is I'll like play like an idle game, which is just like, you know, a, a really like basic game, like usually with like not that many mechanics, but enough going on to sort of visually look at and think at to sort of distract that part of my brain. And that's how I've like gotten myself to be able to listen to just music for fun as a relaxing thing as opposed to a work, you know? Like giving a kid a toy just to keep them occupied <laughs> exactly. type of thing? That's awesome. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, just focus on this and like the part of my brain that wants to enjoy music can go do that. If you were to make a video for complete music people, it, what, yeah. what topic do you think you would like to explore? Um, Like in terms of... Something that would probably die on YouTube because casual viewers okay. wouldn't understand it. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, a lot of the stuff that I've like been really trying to talk about, but like been struggling to, or been trying to like talk more deeply about, are these sort of philosophical videos we've talked about, like the stuff about building cannons and like those. I haven't felt yet like I'm running up against too much of a wall in terms of communicating with people. Although I, I like the recent one I did about art music, that was a little hard to figure out how to sell to people because like most people don't know the term. And so it's then hard to sort of basically just for anyone listening who hasn't seen the video again, I should summarize uh, art music is the professional technical academic term for what you probably think of as classical music. Uh, there are reasons why calling it classical music is complicated uh, but like, anyway, the, the the video was basically about the idea that sort of taking this one subset of music and being like, this one's the art. All, all the other things are not art. It's just like, that's maybe bad. I don't, I don't know. Seems bad, right? Do you find it hard to walk the line between creating a video that appeals to musicians and appeals to the general audience at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. I think... Um, Especially the song analyses, one thing that I struggled with for a long time was sort of how to quickly get people up to speed on ideas that I couldn't take a whole digression on. Um, like, there's some things that I just have to assume people know, right? Like, I can't every video explain what a chord is. Like, I, I just have to assume you have that level of musical background. And so, but then you get to things like functional harmony, where, like, for a long time... I sort of had like this like stock line that I would always use when I like functional harmony is the idea that different chords in a key have different functions or jobs to do. Like I, I still have it memorized, <laughs> but like I would just use that. And like, that was a good way to quickly introduce the topic, but it also, you know, you see like people who've watched like 10 of my videos are just like, please stop saying this. <laughs> and so that's sort of what I tried to do then was sort of step back and figure out how to describe the ideas without having to use the terms and that's sort of been a thing that I've been focusing on a lot recently is sort of how to take cons talk about concepts more than I talk about terminology, because the terminology is usually there to describe a concept, but that only works if you know the term already. Otherwise, I have to define it anyway. And at that point, what are we even doing? You know, have you ever ditched a video in editing? Because you're just like, uh, this isn't going anywhere. Uh, no, I like I've like. I've for years stuck to a strict weekly schedule. I've sort of backed off on that over the last year or so. Uh, but like, I, I have a pretty strict publishing schedule that I stick to. And so like, by the time I'm at like the editing process, like the video is going to get published. Like it, it, I just, I don't have time to make a new one. Uh, and so like, 
sometimes I will scrap a thing in the script writing process. If I'm writing and it's just like, I don't feel like I have enough to say here. I don't feel like this is turning out interesting. I'll just call an audible and like do a quick thing that I don't really have to research instead. Uh, and so like, I'll, I'll do that sometimes, but usually like once I've started actually producing the video, it's probably too late to turn, pull out and try something different. So you probably get asked this a lot, but what do you do with all those sheets of paper that you, <laughs> you fill up on uh, every, so <laughs> every episode? Literally every sheet of paper that has ever been drawn on in a 12 tone episode is still in my house. Um, most of them are in my music room, just in like a big pile, uh, dating back like six years. Some of them I haven't moved there yet. They're still down on the table that I film on, but like, like the last couple, but like, I keep getting people asking me to sell them and like, I probably could, but like, I feel like so weird about not having them anymore. Yeah. You know? ah. And so I just like, I don't do anything with them, but I have them. When I was in high school and I was taking <clears throat> private lessons, I was in the jazz band in high school and my private instructor at the time, he was playing, and I think he called it just creative music or something at the time where they yeah. would take the sheet, would just abandon sheet music. And he would show me some of these charts that were just like random spirals with dots. And so the whole band would try to just interpret that in real time, you know, playing that. <laughs> and I see those sheets of, of music of yours and I wonder if like, wow, I wonder if you could play any of those sheets. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've actually got people asking me about that because it's sort of, uh, it sounds similar, not quite the same, but similar to a movement called uh, the graphic scores, mm. which were right. sort of that, although usually the way that those were supposed to work, I did air quotes on those for anyone listening, just to be clear. Um, but like the, the way those were typically done was you would do those, but then the performer would come up with a set of rules in advance so that every performance, they would be reading it and performing it the same way but you would still have to decide what the notation meant. And I, like, I, I've had people asking me if like, if I could publish some of my like, like papers as just like as graphic scores yeah. and just like, here's this, see, go through it, see what you can do, which is especially interesting to me because the way you would read it, which is like top left to bottom, right, yeah. is not the way that I draw them. It's not the order they're in. So you sort of wind up with this like thing that's not even really representing what I did, but it's, like an interpretation of it, and it's it's. Oh, you got to do I think this. It'd be really cool. You got to get all get your U YouTube music guys together and <laughs> record that. I want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I might that actually might I might talk to Adam Neely about that. Oh, he he's would been doing be... some like composition challenges. Yeah, and he would just, just like, he would play the lick. Yeah, he would. Play yeah, the lick. exactly. <laughs> but just like yeah, see if he wants to just like take those and like bring in some actual musicians and be like, here, do these as graphic scores. See what <laughs> happens. Fantastic. I would love it. Rick Beato released a video not too long ago talking about the frustrations of the uh, content um, uh, copyright system yeah. on YouTube. What, as a musical creator, uh, what is the experience like um, with the so, copyright system? I've been, I was going to say fairly lucky, but honestly fairly careful uh, about that. Like, <clears throat> I will... Um, for years, I didn't even play actual clips. I played MIDI recreations, but um, I, I stopped doing that actually on the video I did for Chop Suey by System of a Down, because one of the things I wanted to talk about was this like really fast, like I think like thirty second note trill that they're doing, or it might be sixteenths at a fast tempo, but like you know, you know the song. I love um, the song. <laughs> it's a great Chop song. Suey, yeah, <laughs> but uh, but just like those sorts of like super fast trills. 
in like at least the MIDI stuff that I had just sounded like absolute garbage. It just like they sucked. I hated it. And so I was just like, I need to use like actual in order to demonstrate this thing so I can talk about it. I need to use the real track. And I tried that and it worked. And again, I, I'm, like, I'm pretty careful about like the length of clip that I use. So I, I will try to stick to like six seconds or so if I can. Um, the general experience is that like eight seconds is where they will definitely catch you. Six seconds below that is where they definitely won't. And in the range between, it's kind of a flip a coin, you know. Uh, but like technically, they're not allowed to claim anything under 10 seconds, but they don't care. 10 seconds is a lot of leeway, though, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, Do you think it, it's fair that if it was like less than five seconds, that gives enough context to be able to like at least break down a few bars, but like not get too much? I, I see yeah. a lot of creators like walking that fine line between it's fair use because I'm critiquing. It. It's like, yeah, but you're using a big 18 second yeah. chunk of a song. Like at that point, I think. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it definitely depends. Like, um, like there are there are rulings like that, you know, amount of use cannot in itself make something not fair use but obviously you know if i'm just playing the entire song first and then talking about it that's probably not okay <laughs> um but like what i what i'll try and do is sort of use the smallest amount that i can use to make the point i want to make and sometimes that that gets up to like 10 12 seconds like if if i have to if it's like a long melodic phrase but like i will try as much as i can to keep it as short as i can without pushing with without losing the information that I'm trying to convey. Sometimes it sounds like you're able to isolate individual tracks too on the songs. Yeah. So that that's not me isolating mostly. That's um a lot of times, especially for more recent stuff, uh those tracks are just out there. Oh okay. Um they're called stems. They're isolated instrument tracks and for popular songs from around nineteen ninety onwards, they're not that hard to find usually. Uh, for some of the older stuff, they may not exist. So I, I've found websites that will do like professional recreations, which I will use. Uh, you can also sometimes find at least like a, like a, a, a track for the voice and a track for the other instruments as well. Like that's not that hard to find. So depending on the song, but like I'm actually working on one for like the first time ever. I have been completely unable to find isolated tracks for this song. So... I'm just going to have to play like actual audio from the song because it, well, it's the video will be out by the time I like this podcast is released. Probably it's uh Jimi Hendrix is all along the watchtower. Oh, nice. And I can't do MIDI recreations of that guitar and then like <laughs> pretend that like everything's what fine. I'm yeah. It's just so much of that is not just like, not just which notes he's playing, but the, this phrasing and the way he bends and slides. And like, I, I just, I can't with a straight face talk about Jimi Hendrix's guitar technique while doing MIDI recreations of his guitar technique. It just won't work. And so I, like, probably will have to just use the actual tracks. But, like, for the most part, like, if you look at, like, stuff that I've done that's older, that's mostly, like, professional recreations. If you look at the new ones, that's usually, like, actual stems. But it it, it varies. Is it just me, or are your thumbnails slowly getting darker and zooming in closer and closer to the page? <laughs> Uh, they're definitely zooming in closer. Uh, just, that's partly to try and make the text more readable. But I, they they have gotten darker a couple times. But like <laughs> uh, over the course period. of the <laughs> 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 but yeah, basically, like if you see like noticeable like like 
changes from like one video to the next that's because i got a new camera usually like there's a couple times in 12 tone history where that happened or i like found a new setting but like these days the actual the, the vignette the sort of brown coloration i do around the outside that's i just have saved as a preset so that's always the same color how much time do you spend on your thumbnails um well drawing them not that much because you know the but, but figuring like, out figuring, what the right drawing out, is and yeah. figuring out the right combination of words. And do you, uh, do you ever double up your words that you use in your thumbnail in your title or do you keep those separate? I tend to try and do two because I figure, you know, you, you have two separate shots to try and get someone's attention. You might as well use both of them. Uh, so I, I try to sort of view the thumbnail these days as like a second title that sort of... It, or one, like, one piece of advice I got from a friend a long time ago is like, people read thumbnails, YouTube reads titles. And so you think about like trying to get like keywords in or whatever, which I mean, these days I'm pretty sure they're reading thumbnails too. Like I'm pretty sure they have that level of like yeah, they do. Uh, AI, just like reading technology so that they can tell what you're, th- I, although I don't know with mine because they're handwritten. So who knows, but. Well, they listen to the videos actually. So they can true. pull out. Yeah. Anything that you're yeah. saying in the video is, is a keyword in itself. That's, now, so, that's yeah. true. But yeah, and that, so they, I, I tend to think of like, you know, if, I want my thumbnail to sort of grab you and I want you to be able to look at the title and get a bit more context about what's happening. And if the title is just the same thing as the thumbnail, then I'm just giving up that opportunity for no reason. Talk just for a minute about the community of YouTubers making music theory videos. You guys seem to be real tight. It seems to be like a really strong yeah. community on YouTube. Yeah, I mean, there's like... It's sort of it's a weird thing that happened. Sort of there, there were some precursor precursors. Wow, that, <laughs> words are hard. Um, but there's some precursors like uh, Michael New who were doing it before. But sort of if you look around like 2015, 2016, that's when I started publishing. That's when Adam switched to doing video essays. That's when Rick switched to doing video essays. That's when Eight Bit started publishing. That's around when Sideways started publishing. I think that's when Amy started publishing. <laughs> like so, there's like this like half dozen or so of us or this handful of like creators who just like simultaneously were just like you know what this should be a thing like i'm sick of this not really being a thing so we're gonna make it and we sort of all came up at around the same time and we all sort of like got recommended each other's videos because youtube was like oh you're doing music theory videos you might want to watch this other music theory video and so we became aware of each other and jake lizio too i forgot to mention him but he's great um signals music studio but anyway um like we we all sort of came up and became aware of each other and sort of got to know each other and like all of us were thinking of what we were doing as sort of this isolated thing and then we sort of found out about each other and we got talking and so that sort of became pretty close knit like there's there's we're not like all friends like i don't think there's like a lot of like huge conflict or anything but for instance i i don't know rick beato that well like he and i don't really talk and that's not like a negative on him or anything but we we just we we haven't really connected in that way like we haven't really talked but like you know like at this this point like adam and i are like we dm each other all the time we're like adam is like represented by my management company too and so like on that slack we'll just send each other messages about things and like i've had him show up like feature in multiple videos i've done like responses to his videos and like i have similar like channels to like sideways and and Amy Nolte and all of this stuff. So I'm actually like, and this, I, I don't know the timing on this, so it may or may not be out, but it, it probably won't be out. It, academic publishing goes super slow, but I'm actually like 
working on a chapter for the Oxford uh, Handbook on Public Music Theory about Music Theory YouTube. Uh, I'm co-authoring that with uh, someone who actually knows what she's talking about. But um, like uh, we, we are just like doing like final revisions now. Uh, so yeah, that's sort of been a, a big project. I'm, now that I say that, I'm not actually sure what the NDA situation is on that. Uh, <laughs> I think I'm allowed to talk about it. Let us know. But, we can yeah. cut it out. This is, we've got a week here. But... I think you were ambiguous enough. But yeah, yeah. if there's any yeah. concern, we can yeah. certainly. But yeah, no, it's sort of been so I've been spending a lot of time thinking about it and like learning about the history of this stuff and sort of how this community came into existence. And it is, again, like you said, it's, it's a really strong right. community. It's not just like. It's a bunch of people see. doing things like we all know each other and we all watch each other and we're all like, you know, friends with each other. A lot of us support each other on Patreon and that's, fantastic. you know, it's, it's a whole big thing. Where do you see your channel heading in the next, uh, say, five years? Um, I don't know, honestly, like I. I'm definitely like at a point where. I I just. I don't know that I like want to still be doing what I'm doing in five years, but I don't know that I don't either. Right. Yeah. You know, it's sort of, I, I mean, I've, I've never been good at like planning super far ahead. Right. Like I've so much of my life has just been me picking a thing and hoping that thing works. And YouTube is, YouTube is great for that because things will, opportunities will arise and you'll, you'll hit upon something all of a sudden that you never th thought about. Yeah. Yeah. Like I sort of, I think I mentioned before the show that I like I have my own podcast with uh, Noah from Polyphonic. It's called Ghost Notes. Get that plug. But um, uh, like the the um, that that was just something that happened because like we were hanging out and we're just like, hey, I like talking about music with you. We should do a podcast. And that took like a year from when we had that idea to when we actually started doing it. But like it, it's sort of like it, it opened up that all these opportunities and like now we're we're like doing it more often we've we picked up our pace we're doing more like guest episodes and stuff and so it's been this whole big thing that i i think is sort of honestly like i don't know your experience well i can totally I relate to that oh my god that is just that's our podcast it's it is the most exciting thing the fun to work ratio is so much higher <laughs> with podcasting and part of that is again like i have i have someone doing the editing for me so literally all i have to do is record the conversation and then just like go back and listen to it a month later to double check that the edit is good, which it always is. And so, you know, that that's... It's a great title for a podcast, Ghost Notes. I love the concept <laughs> yeah. of, of a note that you hear, but it doesn't even exist, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we went back a lot and forth a lot on that. We had sort of... One that we had sort of wanted to do was Off the Record, but of course there are already like a dozen podcasts called Off the Record. So we were just like had this brainstorming session that where we just like threw back and forth different music terms until like someone suggested ghost notes. And then we were all like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. That's good. Is there a technically brilliant band who you can't stand? Huh. Uh, yeah, plenty of them. Um, uh, like, top yes. three. Um, the the go-to example that I always use here is tool. Tool. I was going to say uh, the same thing. Yeah. Which, I, and I, I mean, no disrespect. If anyone listening likes tool, uh, that's great. I'm not trying to take that away from you, but like, I always feel one, one of the things, like I, I get people asking me to sort of analyze tool songs, especially lateralis. Mm -hmm. Uh, and 
what I always feel when I listen to a Tool song is that someone is just like sitting next to me, sort of like nudging me and be like, do you get it? Do you get it? Right. Do, do you see that? Do you see what we did there? Do you, do you catch that part? <laughs> and I just like, I feel like instead of being able to go in and find what I want to find in the music, I'm sort of being led by the hand to like all of these cool things that they did on purpose and that I have to recognize and understand. And that's just not really appealing to me. And again, if you like Tool, great. Have fun. Not trying to take that away from you. I don't. Well, you actually had a video on how to write good songs. And one of those things was try to avoid being overly clever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was, yeah. It starts to become part of the band's culture where it's like the fan base is like, yo, we like fish because they're just so next level. Like you do, yeah. you don't, people who don't like fish don't get fish. And then that becomes yeah. a thing. And it's like, in order to like it, I need to sit here. So follow up yeah. question. Is there a, a crap band who you just love? Like <laughs> not technical, but you love <laughs> listening to their music. Oh yeah. though that, That's like a lot of bands that I like are not like super technical. Like a, the best examples are probably punk. Yeah. Like I think punk does get, I think undercredited for its technique. I think there is a lot of technique that doesn't really go recognized. But like, if you listen to like London calling or whatever, like that is not on the technical level of say lateralis, but I like it a lot more. And, and those sorts of like, I, I think that there, there's this tendency to sort of view technical prowess and theoretical prowess as equivalent to quality and i think that that is usually bad i think it's usually not an effective way to sort of measure and again yeah people can like what they like i'm not trying to take that away from you but like for the most part it's sort of it's a weird question to even engage with because that's like like it's not really how i think about music in the first place so yeah, like, it's, it's sort of the question yeah. about when in movies, when people ask for a guilty pleasure, you should be feel guilty yeah. about anything because it's a good, if you yeah. like it, you like right. it. I enjoy yeah. listening to Nickelback. I should not feel <laughs> guilty about listening yeah. to Nickelback. No. They're, we're very proud that they're Canadian too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, there's a lot of, a lot of Nickelback stuff that I like, not photographs so much. Like that's the one that everyone dunks on. And like, that's not my favorite Nickelback. That one, one. deserves like, to be dunked on. That one, that one's not great, but like they have, they have a lot of cool stuff. Uh, do you have people that literally try to qualify their favorite band through you? Like, they'll be like, hey, you must love Primus, right? Primus is my favorite band. Tell me you love Primus, too. <laughs> yeah. Primus yeah. sucks. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah. Primus does suck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not not going to co-sign this Primus hate. But <laughs> but no, I, I definitely do do get that, where like like people will... Like Death Grips is one that I get a lot of people being like, "Hey, you like you should make a video about Death Grips. I'm sure you love Death Grips." And like I, I have no problem with Death Grips. Like I've listened to some Death Grips stuff. It's not super my thing, but like I can appreciate it. But like there's there's this idea like people who really like it are like, oh, other people who also think a lot about music are going to like the things that I like. And it's just like, well, I I think about like, I, I think for the most part like again, coming back to this idea of like music theory and analysis coming from a place of respect and appreciation. Like I, I spend a lot of time thinking about the sorts of music that I already liked and that can lead me to new kinds of music, but it also cannot. It also can like lead me to a deeper appreciation of stuff that like you may think of as simple. Like I did a video recently about toxic by Britney Spears and like, you know, you think of that as like, you know, fairly, fairly basic pop song, like, 
I just like when I was growing up, that was Britney's was like the pop queen. Like, uh, and so, but like once you start to dig in, like there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. And it's also just like, it's a good song separate from all that interesting stuff. To listen to more fascinating musical insights, or if you just want to check out some of the cute little elephants that Corey draws, be sure to visit his YouTube channel, 12 Tone, or his podcast, Ghost Notes. <laughs> to listen to more fascinating interviews like this one, why not head over to our website, chadandsteve.com, where you will find a plethora, a plethora of creator interviews for your listening enjoyment. Want to support the show? You can do so by visiting Apple Podcasts and leaving us a rating or a review. It's free for you, and it really helps the show. Thanks for listening, everyone.